Question 22 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 22 of the Priesthood of Christ in Six Articles We have now to consider the priesthood of Christ, and under this heading there are six points of inquiry. First, whether it is fitting that Christ should be a priest. Second, of the victim offered by this priest. Third, of the effect of this priesthood. Fourth, whether the effect of his priesthood pertains to himself or only to others. Fifth, of the eternal duration of his priesthood. Sixth, whether he should be called a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. First article whether it is fitting that Christ should be a priest. Objection 1. It would seem unfitting that Christ should be a priest. For a priest is less than an angel, whence it is written in Zechariah 3.1, The Lord showed me the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. But Christ is greater than the angels according to Hebrews 1.4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath inherited a more excellent name than they. Therefore it is unfitting that Christ should be a priest. Objection to further. Things which were in the Old Testament were figures of Christ according to Colossians 2.17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ's. But Christ was not descended from the priests of the old law, for the Apostle says in Hebrews 7.14, It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, in which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Therefore, it is not fitting that Christ should be a priest. Objection 3 further. In the old law, which is a figure of Christ, the lawgivers and the priests were distinct, Wherefore the Lord said to Moses, the lawgiver, in Exodus 28, verse 1, Take unto thee Aaron, thy brother, that he may minister to me in the priest's office. But Christ is the giver of the new law, according to Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, I will give my law in their bowels. Therefore it is unfitting that Christ should be a priest. On the contrary, it is written in Hebrews 4.14, We have therefore a great high priest that hath passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I answer that, the office proper to a priest is to be a mediator between God and the people, to wit, inasmuch as he bestows defined things on the people, wherefore, sacerdos, priest, means a giver of sacred things, sacra duns, according to Malachi 2.7, they shall seek the law at his, that is the priest's, 
mouth. And again, forasmuch as he offers up the people's prayer to God, and in a manner makes satisfaction to God for their sins, wherefore the Apostle says in Hebrews 5.1, Every priest taken from among men is ordained for men in the things that appertain to God, that he may offer up gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now this is most befitting to Christ, for through him are gifts bestowed on men, according to Second Peter 1.4, by whom, that is Christ, he hath given us most great and precious promises, that by these you may be made partakers of the divine nature. Moreover, he reconciled the human race to God, according to Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. In him, that is Christ, it hath well pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, and through him to reconcile all things unto himself. Therefore it is most fitting that Christ should be a priest. Reply to Objection 1. Hierarchical power appertains to the angels, inasmuch as they also are between God and man, as Dionysius explains, in On the Celestial Hierarchy 9, so that the priest himself, as being between God and man, is called an angel, according to Malachi 2.7. He is the angel of the Lord of hosts. Now Christ was greater than the angels, not only in his Godhead, but also in his humanity, as having the fullness of grace and glory. Wherefore also he had the hierarchical or priestly power in a higher degree than the angels, so that even the angels were ministers of his priesthood, according to Matthew 4.11. Angels came and ministered unto him. But in regard to his passibility, he was made a little lower than the angels, as the apostle says in Hebrews 2.9. And thus he was conformed to those wayfarers who are ordained to the priesthood. Reply to Objection 2. As Damascene says in On the True Faith 3.26, What is like in every particular must be, of course, identical and not a copy. Since, therefore, the priesthood of the old law was a figure of the priesthood of Christ, he did not wish to be born of the stock of the figurative priests, that it might be made clear that his priesthood is not quite the same as theirs, but differs therefrom as truth from figure. Reply to Objection 3 As stated above in Question 7, Article 7, First Reply, other men have certain graces distributed among them, but Christ, as being the head of all, has the perfection of all graces. Wherefore, as to others, one is a lawgiver, another is a priest, another is a king, but all these concur in Christ as the fount of all grace. Hence it is written in Isaiah 33.22, The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will come and save us. Second Article whether Christ was himself both priest and victim. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ was not both priest and victim. 
for it is the duty of the priest to slay the victim but christ did not kill himself therefore he was not both priest and victim objection to further the priesthood of christ has a greater similarity to the jewish priesthood instituted by god than to the priesthood of the gentiles by which the demons were worshipped now in the old law man was never offered up in sacrifice whereas this was very much to be reprehended in the sacrifices of the gentiles according to psalm 105 verse 38 they shed innocent blood the blood of their sons and of their daughters which they sacrificed to the idols of canaan therefore in christ's priesthood the man christ should not have been the victim objection three further every victim through being offered to god is consecrated to god but the humanity of christ was from the beginning consecrated and united to god therefore it cannot be said fittingly that christ as man was a victim on the contrary the apostle says in ephesians five two christ hath loved us and hath delivered himself for us an oblation and a victim to god for an odor of sweetness i answer that as augustine says in on the city of god ten five every visible sacrifice is a sacrament that is a sacred sign of the invisible sacrifice now the invisible sacrifice is that by which a man offers his spirit to god according to psalm 50 verse 19 a sacrifice to god is an afflicted spirit wherefore whatever is offered to god in order to raise man's spirit to him may be called a sacrifice now man is required to offer sacrifice for three reasons first for the remission of sin by which he is turned away from god hence the apostle says in hebrews 5 1 that it appertains to the priest to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins secondly that a man may be preserved in a state of grace by ever adhering to god wherein his peace and salvation consist wherefore under the old law the sacrifice of peace offerings was offered up for the salvation of the offerers as is prescribed in the third chapter of leviticus thirdly in order that the spirit of man be perfectly united to god which will be most perfectly realized in glory hence under the old law the holocaust was offered so called because the victim was wholly burnt as we read in the first chapter of leviticus now these effects were conferred on us by the humanity of christ for in the first place our sins were blotted out according to romans four twenty five who was delivered up for our sins secondly through him we received the grace of salvation according to hebrews five nine he became to all that obey him the cause of eternal salvation thirdly through him we have acquired the perfection of glory according to hebrews ten nineteen we have a confidence in the entering into the holies that is the heavenly glory through his blood therefore christ himself as man was not only priest but also a perfect victim 
being at the same time victim for sin, victim for a peace offering, and a holocaust. Reply to Objection 1. Christ did not slay himself, but of his own free will he exposed himself to death, according to Isaiah 53.7. He was offered because it was his own will. Thus he is said to have offered himself. Reply to Objection 2. The slaying of the man Christ may be referred to a twofold will. First, to the will of those who slew him, and in this respect he was not a victim, for the slayers of Christ are not accounted as offering a sacrifice to God, but as guilty of a great crime, a similitude of which was borne by the wicked sacrifices of the Gentiles, in which they offered up men to idols. Secondly, the slaying of Christ may be considered in reference to the will of the sufferer, who freely offered himself to suffering. In this respect he is a victim, and in this he differs from the sacrifices of the Gentiles. Translator's note, the reply to the third objection is wanting in the original manuscripts, but it may be gathered from the above. Some additions, however, give the following reply. Reply to Objection 3. The fact that Christ's manhood was holy from its beginning does not prevent that same manhood, when it was offered to God in the Passion, being sanctified in a new way, namely as a victim actually offered then. For it acquired then the actual holiness of a victim from the charity which it had from the beginning, and from the grace of union sanctifying it absolutely. Third article, whether the effect of Christ's priesthood is the expiation of sins. Objection 1. It would seem that the effect of Christ's priesthood is not the expiation of sins, for it belongs to God alone to blot out sins, according to Isaiah 43.25. I am he that blot out thy iniquities for my own sake. But Christ is priest, not as God but as man. Therefore the priesthood of Christ does not expiate sins. Objection to further. The Apostle says in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 3, that the victims of the Old Testament could not make the comers thereunto perfect. For then they would have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers once cleansed should have no conscience of sin any longer, but in them there is made a commemoration of sins every year. But in like manner, under the priesthood of Christ, a commemoration of sins is made in the words, Forgive us our trespasses, as stated in Matthew 6.12. Moreover, the sacrifice is offered continuously in the church, wherefore again we say, Give us this day our daily bread. Therefore, Sins are not expiated by the priesthood of Christ. Objection 3 further. In the sin offerings of the old law, a he-goat was mostly offered for the sin of a prince, a she-goat for the sin of some private individual, a calf for the sin of a priest, as we gather from Leviticus 4, verses 3, 23, and 28. But Christ is compared to none of these, but to the Lamb, according to Jeremiah 
I was as meek as a lamb that is carried to be a victim. Therefore, it seems that his priesthood does not expiate sins. On the contrary, the Apostle says in Hebrews 9, verse 14, The blood of Christ, who by the Holy Ghost offered himself unspotted unto God, shall cleanse our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. But dead works denote sins. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ has the power to cleanse from sins. I answer that. Two things are required for the perfect cleansing from sins, corresponding to the two things comprised in sin, namely, the stain of sin and the debt of punishment. The stain of sin is, indeed, blotted out by grace, by which the sinner's heart is turned to God, whereas the debt of punishment is entirely removed by the satisfaction that man offers to God. Now the priesthood of Christ produces both these effects. For by its virtue, grace is given to us, by which our hearts are turned to God, according to Romans 3, verses 24 and 25. Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath promised to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Moreover, he satisfied for us fully, inasmuch as he hath borne our infirmities and carried our sorrows, as is stated in Isaiah 53.4. Wherefore, it is clear that the priesthood of Christ has full power to expiate sins. Reply to Objection 1. Although Christ was a priest, not as God, but as man, yet one and the same was both priest and God. Wherefore, in the Council of Ephesus, part 3, chapter 1, tenth anathema, we read, If anyone say that the very word of God did not become our high priest and apostle when he became flesh and a man like us, but altogether another one, the man born of a woman, let him be anathema. Hence, insofar as his human nature operated by virtue of the divine, that sacrifice was most efficacious for the blotting out of sins. For this reason, Augustine says in On the Holy Trinity 4.14, so that since four things are to be observed in every sacrifice, to whom it is offered, by whom it is offered, what is offered, for whom it is offered, the same one true mediator reconciling us to God by the sacrifice of peace was one with him to whom it was offered, united in himself those for whom he offered it, at the same time offered it himself, and was himself that which he offered. Reply to Objection 2. Sins are commemorated in the new law, not on account of the inefficacy of the priesthood of Christ, as those sins were not sufficiently expiated by him, but in regard to those who either are not willing to be participators in his sacrifice, such as unbelievers, for whose sins we pray that they be converted, or who, after taking part in this sacrifice, fall away from it by whatsoever kind of sin. The sacrifice which is offered every day in the church 
is not distinct from that which Christ himself offered, but is a commemoration thereof. Wherefore Augustine says in On the City of God 10.20, Christ himself both is the priest who offers it and the victim, the sacred token of which he wished to be the daily sacrifice of the church. Reply to Objection 3. As Origen says in his commentary on the Gospel of John 129, though various animals were offered up under the old law, yet the daily sacrifice which was offered up morning and evening was a lamb, as appears from Numbers 38, verses 3 and 4, by which it was signified that the offering up of the true lamb, that is, Christ, was the culminating sacrifice of all. Hence, in John chapter 1, verse 29, it is said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sins of the world. Fourth article. Whether the effect of the priesthood of Christ pertained not only to others, but also to himself. Objection 1. It would seem that the effect of the priesthood of Christ pertained not only to others, but also to himself. For it belongs to the priest's office to pray for the people, according to Second Maccabees one twenty-three. The priests made prayer while the sacrifice was consuming. Now Christ not only prayed for others, but also for himself, as we have said above in question 21, article 3, and as expressly stated in Hebrews 5.7, in the days of his flesh, with a strong cry and tears, he offered up prayers and supplications to him that was able to save him from death. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ had an effect not only in others, but also in himself. Objection to further. In his passion, Christ offered himself as a sacrifice. But by his passion he merited not only for others, but also for himself, as stated above in question 19, articles 3 and 4. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ had an effect not only in others, but also in himself. Objection 3 further. The priesthood of the old law was a figure of the priesthood of Christ. But the priest of the old law offered sacrifice not only for others, but also for himself. For it is written in Leviticus 16.17 that the high priest goeth into the sanctuary to pray for himself and his house, and for the whole congregation of Israel. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ also had an effect not merely in others, but also in himself. On the contrary, we read in the Acts of the Council of Ephesus, Part 3, Chapter 1, Tenth Anathema. If anyone say that Christ offered sacrifice for himself, and not rather for us alone, for he who knew not sin needed no sacrifice, let him be anathema. But the priest's office consists principally in offering sacrifice. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ had no effect in himself. I answer that, as stated above in Article 1, a priest is set between God and man. Now he needs someone between himself and God, who of himself cannot approach to God. 
and such a one is subject to the priesthood by sharing in the effect thereof. But this cannot be said of Christ, for the Apostle says in Hebrews 7.25, Coming of himself to God, always living to make intercession for us. And therefore it is not fitting for Christ to be the recipient of the effect of his priesthood, but rather to communicate it to others. For the influence of the first agent in every genus is that it receives nothing in that genus. Thus the sun gives, but does not receive light. Fire gives, but does not receive heat. Now Christ is the fountainhead of the entire priesthood, for the priest of the old law was a figure of him, while the priest of the new law works in his person, according to Second Corinthians 2.10, for what I have pardoned, if I have pardoned anything, for your sakes I have done it in the person of Christ. Therefore, it is not fitting that Christ should receive the effect of his priesthood. Reply to Objection 1. Although prayer is befitting to priests, it is not their proper office, for it is befitting to everyone to pray for both himself and for others, according to James 5.16. Pray for one another that you may be saved. And so we may say that the prayer by which Christ prayed for himself was not an action of his priesthood. But this answer seems to be precluded by the apostle who, after saying in Hebrews 5.6, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, adds, Who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers, etc., as quoted above in Objection 1. So that it seems that the prayer which Christ offered pertained to his priesthood. We must therefore say that other priests partake in the effect of their priesthood, not as priests, but as sinners, as we shall state further on in the third reply. But Christ had, simply speaking, no sin though he had the likeness of sin in the flesh, as is written in Romans 8.3. And consequently, we must not say simply that he partook of the effect of his priesthood, but with this qualification, in regard to the passibility of the flesh. Wherefore he adds pointedly, that was able to save him from death. Reply to Objection 2. Two things may be considered in the offering of a sacrifice by any priest, namely, the sacrifice itself which is offered, and the devotion of the offerer. Now the proper effect of priesthood is that which results from the sacrifice itself. But Christ obtained a result from his passion, not as by virtue of the sacrifice, which is offered by way of satisfaction, but by the very devotion with which, out of charity, he humbly endured the passion. Reply to Objection 3. A figure cannot equal the reality, wherefore the figural priest of the old law could not attain to such perfection as not to need a sacrifice of satisfaction. But Christ did not stand in need of this. Consequently, there is no comparison between the two, and this is what the Apostle says in Hebrews 7.28. The law maketh men priests who have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, the Son who is perfected for evermore.
Fifth Article Whether the Priesthood of Christ Endures Forever Objection 1. It would seem that the priesthood of Christ does not endure forever. For as stated above in Article 4, first and third replies, those alone need the effect of the priesthood who have the weakness of sin, which can be expiated by the priest's sacrifice. But this will not be forever. For in the saints there will be no weakness, according to Isaiah 60.21. Thy people shall be all just. While no expiation will be possible for the weakness of sin, since there is no redemption in hell, according to the office of the dead, seventh reply. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ endures not forever. Objection to further. The priesthood of Christ was made manifest most of all in his passion and death, when, by his own blood, he entered into the holies, as is stated in Hebrews 9.12. But the passion and death of Christ will not endure forever, as stated in Romans 6.9. Christ raising again from the dead dieth now no more. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ will not endure forever. Objection 3 further. Christ is a priest, not as God, but as man. But at one time Christ was not man, namely, during the three days he lay dead. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ endures not forever. On the contrary, it is written, in Psalm 109, verse 4, Thou art a priest forever. I answer that, in the priestly office, we may consider two things. First, the offering of the sacrifice. Secondly, the consummation of the sacrifice, consisting in this, that those for whom the sacrifice is offered obtain the end of the sacrifice. Now the end of the sacrifice which Christ offered consisted not in temporal, but in eternal good which we obtain through his death, according to Hebrews 9.11. Christ is a high priest of the good things to come. For which reason, the priesthood of Christ is said to be eternal. Now this consummation of Christ's sacrifice was foreshadowed in this, that the high priest of the old law, once a year, entered into the holy of holies with the blood of a he-goat and a calf, as laid down in Leviticus 16.11. And yet he offered up the he-goat and calf not within the Holy of Holies, but without. In like manner, Christ entered into the Holy of Holies, that is, into heaven, and prepared the way for us that we might enter by the virtue of his blood, which he shed for us on earth. Reply to Objection 1. The saints who will be in heaven will not need any further expiation by the priesthood of Christ, but having expiated, they will need consummation through Christ himself, on whom their glory depends, as is written in Apocalypse 21.23. The glory of God hath enlightened it, that is, the city of the saints, and the Lamb is the lamp thereof. Reply to Objection 2. Although Christ's passion and death are not to be repeated, yet the virtue of that victim endures forever, for, 
as it is written in Hebrews 10.14, By one oblation he hath perfected for ever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the reply to the third objection is clear. As to the unity of the sacrifice, it was foreshadowed in the law in that, once a year, the high priest of the law entered into the holies with a solemn oblation of blood as set down in Leviticus 16.11. But the figure fell short of the reality in this, that the victim had not an everlasting virtue for which reason those sacrifices were renewed every year. Sixth Article whether the priesthood of Christ was according to the order of Melchizedek. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ's priesthood was not according to the order of Melchizedek. For Christ is the fountainhead of the entire priesthood, as being the principal priest. Now that which is principal is not secondary in regard to others, but others are secondary in its regard. Therefore, Christ should not be called a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Objection to further. The priesthood of the old law was more akin to Christ's priesthood than was the priesthood that existed before the law. But the nearer the sacraments were to Christ, the more clearly they signified him, as is clear from what we have said in the second part, the pars secunda secunde, question 2, article 7. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ should be denominated after the priesthood of the law, rather than after the order of Melchizedek, which was before the law. Objection 3 further. It is written in Hebrews 7, verses 2 and 3, that is, king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor ending of life which can be referred only to the Son of God. Therefore, Christ should not be called a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as of someone else, but according to his own order. On the contrary, it is written in Psalm 109, verse 4, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I answer that, as stated above in Article 4, Third Reply. The priesthood of the law was a figure of the priesthood of Christ, not as adequately representing the reality, but as falling very short thereof, both because the priesthood of the law did not wash away sins, and because it was not eternal as the priesthood of Christ. Now the excellence of Christ's over the Levitical priesthood was foreshadowed in the priesthood of Melchizedek, who received tithes from Abraham, in whose loins the priesthood of the law was tithed. Consequently, the priesthood of Christ is said to be, according to the order of Melchizedek, on account of the excellence of the true priesthood over the figural priesthood of the law. Reply to Objection 1. Christ is said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, not as though the latter were a more excellent priest, but because he foreshadowed the excellence of Christ's over the Levitical priesthood. Reply to Objection 2. Two things may be considered in Christ's priesthood, namely, the offering made by Christ, and our partaking thereof. 
as to the actual offering the priesthood of christ was more distinctly foreshadowed by the priesthood of the law by reason of the shedding of blood than by the priesthood of melchizedek in which there was no blood shedding but if we consider the participation of the sacrifice and the effect thereof wherein the excellence of christ's priesthood over the priesthood of the law principally consists then the former was more distinctly foreshadowed by the priesthood of melchizedek who offered bread and wine signifying as augustine says in his commentary on john ecclesiastical unity which is established by our taking part in the sacrifice of christ wherefore also in the new law the new sacrifice of christ is presented to the faithful under the form of bread and wine reply to objection three melchizedek is described as without father without mother without genealogy and as having neither beginning of days nor ending of life not as though he had not these things but because these details in his regard are not supplied by holy scripture and this it is that the apostle says in the same passage he is likened unto the son of god who had no earthly father no earthly mother and no genealogy according to isaiah fifty three eight who shall declare his generation and who in his godhead has neither beginning nor end of days end of question twenty two read by michael shane craig lambert l c